Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am going to cover Romans 6, verse 1 through verse 14. Our background is this. Paul has been talking about justification by faith from Romans 3, verse 21 to Romans 5, verse 21, into the chapter. At the end of Romans 3, he talked about justification and faith in general. In chapter 4, he talked about how Abraham was justified by faith. So therefore, Abraham is a role model, a progenitor, if you will, a prototype of all who were believed by justification by faith apart from the law, as Abraham was justified by faith apart from the law. And that would include Jews as well as Gentiles. So Abraham is the father of us all, Jews as well as as Gentiles. Paul goes to chapter 5. In the first half of chapter 5, he talks about the great wonderful benefits of being justified by faith, endurance and peace and joy, that kind of thing. And then at the end of chapter 5, he goes into sort of the mechanics of justification by faith, how Jesus substituted for Adam. Adam was the federal head of the old unregenerate race that's doomed for death and destruction and hell. And Jesus then becomes the new Adam, the head of a redeemed community, the new man, the new creation, if you will, the church. And that happens through justification by faith. So the theme is justification by faith through those previous chapters. And now we're going to, Paul is going to do a switch here, and he's going to start talking about sanctification in Romans 6. Justification means to be declared righteous before God. It's a legal term, and it talks about what happens in heaven. But now Paul, we're going to look at what happens on earth. We have this legal freedom from sin, but now how do we live it out here on this planet, which is full of corruption and evil? Now, Paul's teaching on sanctification is going to cover three parts. In chapter 6, he's going to talk about freedom from sin's tyranny. And then in chapter 7, he's going to talk about freedom from the law's condemnation. Now, the two concepts are related. If you are under the tyranny of sin, that means you're under the condemnation of the law because law and sin goes together. More law, more sin. More sin, more law. They're uniquely and intimately tied together, sin and law. And they both have bad results for the Christian if you want to get sanctified. Well, then you go to chapter 8, and Paul says, we're not going to go, we're not going to be subject to sin's tyranny. We're not going to be under the condemnation of the law. Rather, we're going to live a life in the power of the Holy Spirit. So chapter 8 is sort of the culmination of where we're going here in this section of Romans. Now, we're going to learn that Christians are saints. They're not sinners. Now, that might sound like an innocuous statement, but I've taught a, a little teaching I've done several times. And I ask the audience, are you a sinner or are you a saint? It's amazing, half and half. A lot of people, they're bound to determine to raise their hand and say that they're a sinner. Here's a quote from my good friend Steve Ackerson. The Bible calls us saints for a reason. In Christ we are saints, not sinners. In short, there are two types of people, the saints and the ain'ts. Well, we're saints, folks. We're not ain'ts. We're not sinners. Now, I don't have time to do a whole teaching on that, but I'm, I'm going to touch on that as we go through. And more particularly in chapter 6, which is dealing from freedom from sin's tyranny, Paul starts out the discussion with a diatribe or a a polemic, let's put it that way, a polemic against antinomianism, the idea that, hey, I've been teaching you grace in chapters 3 through 5, so you can be justified, because not because of your works, but because of God's grace. Grace, grace, grace. He gives us grace. He gives us forgiveness. And so, therefore, some people are saying, well, great, if he gives us so much forgiveness, if he gives us so much grace, why don't we just go out and sin and sin and sin and watch God forgive it? And we, and we have a license to sin now. Well, of course, that's a classic statement of antinomianism, and Paul is dealing with that ridiculous idea in chapter 6. So we start in Romans 6.1. What should we say then? 
This is a rhetorical question. It arose out of what was just said in Romans 5.20 in the previous chapter. Romans 5.20 says this, The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. And that's what Paul's going to react against. Where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. Because some people were misconstruing Paul to say that he was teaching immoral antinomianism. Sin is multiplying. Grace multiplies even more. We want grace to multiply more, so therefore let's let sin multiply. The NIV Study Bible points out that Paul's critics were teaching, were saying that Paul was teaching something that would lead to moral irresponsibility. And they said, so therefore we need the law to stop this immoral behavior. Now I want to tell you something. This idea is widespread through the body of Christ. I used to have the same idea. Oh my gosh, if we don't have the law... If we don't have the law, we're going to sin like crazy. Modern Reformed people, Presbyterian Reformed people, are constantly saying we need the moral law. And that's the third part of the Mosaic law that was not done away with at the cross. They, they slice the Mosaic law into the moral law, the civil law, and the judicial law. And they say the civil and judicial law has been done away with, but the moral law remains and we need to keep it. And I'm going to say to you, I don't care whether it's the moral law Left over from the ten left over from the Mosaic law, or whether it's the law of conscience on your heart, as if you're just an ordinary Gentile, I don't care what it is, what law you submit yourself to. You try to keep the law in your flesh, and you're going to sin more. And that's another theme we're going to we're going to hit here. And of course, that is directly opposed to antinomianism because antinomianism says. The more law you have, the more righteousness you have. Paul is saying, going to say, no, the more law you have, the more unrighteousness you have. So you antinomians, excuse me, your pronomians, you legalists, you're the ones that are increasing sin, not me when I teach a gospel of grace. Here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Against the doctrine of a purely gratuitous justification, the objection is plausible, nor has there ever been an age in which it has not been urged. And that includes the modern age. I've heard it myself, used to think it myself. Oh my gosh, if we do away with the law, that might leave people free to sin. It's a logical thing to think, and Paul's got to deal with it. Now here's some scriptures. Here's four scriptures which show that the charge of antinomianism had indeed been brought against Paul. Romans 3.8 And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, Let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. You can see Paul's pretty ticked off by these people who are saying, who are twisting his teaching on grace. Galatians 5.13, For you were called to be free, brothers. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. So he knew that some people hearing his doctrine of grace could misconstrue it and say, Oh, we've got a license to sin. 1 Peter 2.16, As God's slaves live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. Same idea as he told the, as that Peter told his readers, as Paul told the Galatians. Jude 1.4, For some men who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into promiscuity and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. So there's the grace. Oh, they hear about grace. Oh, now we can be promiscuous. We can go have, we can be like an American and have sex with anything or anybody with however many people in public or private that we want to. Now, Paul had made two unsettling statements in that setup verse in Romans 5.20. He said the law was given in order to increase sin. And he said God's grace increased to match that increase of sin which was brought about by the law. And that is a little bit unsettling. We're not used to thinking that. Let me read Romans 5.20 again. The law came along to multiply the trespass. Multiply the trespass. You mean law increases sin? Oh, yes, it does. 
It increases the knowledge of sin and it increases the production of sin in those who are under the law. And then Paul says, but where sin multiplied, gross multiplied even more. And that led rise to false charges of antinomianism. Now, Paul, in chapters 6 through 8, is defending that statement in Romans 5.20, that the law increases sin and grace overcomes the increase of sin that's produced by the law, that the law multiplies the trespass and then grace overcomes that sin that has been multiplied by the trespass. Here are four places where he asks four rhetorical questions of those who are distorting his teaching. Romans 6.1, that's our verse that we're on now. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Surely you jest. You're not saying that, are you? That's kind of the attitude he's taking. Romans 6.15. What then? Should we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Absolutely not. Romans 7.7. 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would have not known what it is to cover the law had, not, had I not said do not covet. Now here, the, the accusation against Paul is not directly that you're advocating sin, but you're so much against the law that you're saying the law is sinful. That's sort of a related charge. Grace is good and law is evil. And Paul is saying, no, the law is not sin. It produces sin and it produces knowledge of sin, but it, it itself is holy because it was given by God. And if you keep it within its function, which is to point out sin, not to redeem us from sin, not to let us walk free from the power and penalty of sin, but rather just to point it out and condemn us, well, then, yeah, the law is fine. Nothing wrong with the law. So these, again, false charges against Paul. Romans 7.13, Therefore, did what is good cause my death? Absolutely not. On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me. So it wasn't the law directly that caused Paul's death or any sinner's old man's death. It's sin that is stirred up by the law that produces death. Sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, through law, sin might become sinful beyond measure. So it might be shown to be, oh my gosh, sin is horrible, and therefore I'm condemned. Nothing wrong with the law as long as it's used to produce sin in one and the knowledge of sin so that grace might cover it. Now this might be a little bit hard to understand, but you know, Peter, I, I like this verse about Peter when, when we start thinking about how, how difficult Paul is sometimes. And I can think sometimes his sentences are too long and the grammar's not clear, you know. But this is what Second Peter Peter says in Second Peter 3.16. He speaks about these things in all his letters in which there are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable twist them to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. Perhaps Peter is referring to antinomians who are twisting Paul's doctrine of grace. Now, Paul says here at the end of verse six, one, uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? And, of course, that's a rhetorical question, the answer to which is, no, we're not going to continue in sin. Does that mean that we're not ever going to occasionally sin? No, because the, the present tense for continue is used there, and that shows that what Paul is talking about here is the practice of a sin as a habit. We're not going to continually practice sin as a habit. Reinecker an internet source says this means to stay in sin, to remain in sin, to reside in sin. This does not refer to occasional sin because, of course, everybody sins. A good way to distinguish this is a great quote from the late Baptist pastor Adrian Rogers. The lost man leaps into sin and loves it. The saved man lapses into sin and loathes it. So, yeah, we, we might occasionally fall into sin here, but we're not going to continue in sin so that grace may multiply. According to Paul in verse chapter 6, verse 1 of Romans. Now we go to Romans 6, verse 
Oh, before I leave this verse, let, let me point out something here. It's a little bit polemical. What should we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That question is very similar to questions that is asked of Calvinists by present-day Arminians. Here's what an Arminian might say to a Calvinist. Ask yourself if you hadn't heard this before. Mr. Calvinist, you say we are eternally secure. Doesn't that give us a license to sin because no matter what sin we do, we're going to heaven? That sounds an awful lot like, Paul, are you saying that we should sin so that grace may abound? Are you saying that we should sin so that grace may multiply? Well, what that does is it places the Armenian very close to the distorters of Paul that Paul was fighting, and it places people like me, Calvinists and Augustinians, closer to the camp of Paul. I ask you that. Where, do, where would you prefer to be with the, with the distorters, the legalists, the distorters of Paul, Paul's doctrine of grace, or would you rather be with Paul and his teachings on grace? We go to verse 2 of Romans 6. Absolutely not, Paul answers. Of course, I said it was a rhetorical question in verse 1. Shall we continue in sin? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. Grace does not lead to sin. Grace actually leads to righteousness, not sin. Absolutely not. We shouldn't continue in sin. How can we who died to sin still love in it? Now, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, here Paul is going to focus on dying, dying to sin. The old man is dead. A very key concept. Now, this rhetorical question, how can we who died to sin still live in it, is answered in the next verse of verse 3. Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In other words, you died to sin when you were baptized into Christ Jesus. You were dead to sin, and you're not going to still live in it when you die to sin. Now, when you have somebody dying to something, you have A dying to B. A could be died, dead, and then the relationship between A and B is broken. Or B could be dead, and the relationship between A and B is broken. So the question here is, we are sinners, and we are looking at sin. What dies? Does the sin die, or does the sinner die? Well, does, or does the sin die, or does the Christian die who used to be a sinner? Does he die? Well, the, the answer is the Christian dies, or the old man, the, the Christian before he was regenerated. He dies. The sin doesn't die. The reason I, that, that might mean a, be a fine distinction, but the reason why it's important is, is that some people say that when we die to sin, the sin dies, and therefore we are sinlessly perfect, and we have no sin, and that is nonsense. We are dead to sin, but sin is not dead in us. We are separated from sin's power, but the sin is not extinct in us. Here's an analogy, again, from my good friend Steve Ackerson. It's like a plug being pulled out of an electrical socket. The electricity is still there in the socket, but, we ain't pl but the, pl the appliance is not plugged into it. The idea is sin's still there, and we can plug into it anytime we want, but we don't have to. If we just keep our plug unplugged from sin, we're not going to sin. I have another analogy. Let's say a victorious army has won a battle. Well, the defeated army is still in its camp, but it's not going to attack anymore. It's whipped. So we have victory over sin, folks. The Greek word there, apothenesko, died to sin, died as apothenesko. Thayer's lexicon translates that as to become wholly, or, or defines it as, to become wholly alienated from a thing and freed from all connection with it. That's us, folks. Our new man is totally alienated from sin and freed from all connection with sin. Now, how can the Christian be dead to sin? We're alienated from its power and we are free from its guilt. 
or condemnation. So we are not, sin has no power over us and we have no, and there's no penalty. There's no power and there's no penalty because we're dead to sin. There's no power of sin and there's no penalty of sin in our lives. Another way of saying that when we say we're free from the penalty, we're free from the guilt of the law. We're guilty, therefore we have to be subject to a penalty. But the P's alliterate. So let's just say we're free from the laws and, and sins, power and penalty. We go to verse 3 of Romans 6. Are you, or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Again, remember, we're talking about dying and Paul's going to make an analogy between us dying, our old man, unregenerate self dying, and Jesus dying. And we're identified with Jesus, so when Jesus dies, we die. We die. That's where he's going here. Now, let's talk about baptism in general here. Assuming this is baptized in water, and again, some people take that metaphorically and say that Paul is not referring to water baptism here. I don't think so. that's correct. I think that Paul is indeed talking about water baptism here. I can't prove it, but I believe that's so. Now, the NIV Study Bible has some notes about baptism. In New Testament times, it says, the Study Bible says, in New Testament times, baptism followed conversion very closely. There was none of this medieval idea that you had to spend months in a catechumen class learning the scriptures dressed in a white robe and then, or excuse me, separate from the congregation, which did its worship separately from you, and then you put on a white robe and you dipped yourself into the water or got dipped into the water. No, you got saved, you got baptized. Remember the guy, the Ethiopian eunuch on the road to Gaza, on the road south of, of Israel, got converted by Peter, by uh, Philip. And Philip said, there's some water, let's get baptized. How about in Cornelius's house? Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit fell on them. They spoke in tongues, they got saved. And then Peter said, who shall deny these guys baptism? And so they baptized them. So, as the NIV Study Bible points out, so closely did baptism follow upon conversion that they were considered part of the same event. Baptism and conversion is sort of the same, two aspects of the same event. Baptism was closely associated with faith in Christ because back then they got saved, they got baptized. And so you could say, oh, when did you get baptized? I re- when I spent 23 years in China, and there was a lot of Chinese Christians I talked to, and I would ask them when they were saved, and they'd say, oh, I got baptized on June the 4th. It was a big deal to them, and they assumed that they were saved when they got baptized. And and this includes people who had been saved a good a bit before. In fact, there was one young lady I led to the Lord, a student of mine, and I didn't see her for a long time, maybe a year or so. She moved to a different city, and she got baptized in a church in a different city, and when I saw her again, the conversation came, uh, turned to when she got saved, and she gave her baptism day. I said, no, you've been saved longer than that. You were saved here in, in, in our apartment. And she said, no, I was baptized up there. And I said, I said, Allie, you got saved when you had faith in Jesus Christ. You didn't get saved when you were baptized. But in her mind, and in most Chinese Christians' minds, the two events were so conflated that it was hard for them to distinguish it. Well, that's the same thing here. That, I believe that's historical because baptism comes so closely upon conversion, scripturally, not through church history, but the way it was done originally, scripturally, and properly. So, when one got baptized, the old man died, and faith in Christ arose. So Paul says in verse 3, in Romans 6, Are you unaware that all of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus, that means all of you who were, had faith in Christ Jesus, because when you have faith in Christ Jesus, you get baptized. So Paul is saying, are you unaware that when you had faith in Jesus that you were baptized into his death? As soon as you believe and get born again, then you are 
identified with his death. Because when you are baptized in something, you're identified with it. If I go under the water, I'm completely surrounded by water. I look at the water and I can't see anything but water. If I'm baptized in Christ's death, I can't see anything but Christ's death. Because I'm in union with Christ's death. So water is a symbol of our union with Christ and his death. As Steve Ackerson says, baptismal water is a liquid grave from which an old dead man arises alive. Now, some people take this expression here. Paul says, are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, they take it metaphorically, and they say that this is just saying that when we believe we are so immersed into Christ, therefore we are in union with Christ and his death, as well as his resurrection. But that doesn't isn't meant to be taken literally. Well, like I say, I don't I don't believe that. Well, I will give you some quotations showing a sort of a wussy puss attitude about this issue, saying we really can't tell here. Adam Clark quote: It is probable that the apostle here alludes to the mode of administering baptism by immersion. I say it is probable that the apostle alludes to this mode of immersion, but it is not absolutely certain that he does so. Okay, I'll go along with that. But listen, the reason that people are Complaining about this is because sprinkling doesn't quite give the same metaphor, the same feeling that that immersion does. Because immersion shows that we're totally in Jesus, just like you're totally in the water. And so they they want a, a lot of pedo Baptists want to fudge on what baptism means. So they take it metaphorically here. I don't know whether Clark was a pedo Baptist or not, but he's definitely fudging on what Paul says. James Fawcett Brown says this, Whether the mode of baptism by immersion be alluded to in this verse as a kind of symbolical burial and resurrection does not seem to us of much consequence. Many interpreters think it is, and it may be so. Well, come on. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about getting baptized in water. It makes a perfect metaphor. Because when you go down into water, that's a symbol of dying. Just like you put a body in the dirt, you put a Christian into the water. Because the water, is a, the water is a symbol of the grave and our baptism and our identification with Jesus is death. By the way, again, you can't help get into baptism a little bit. The word bap- baptize comes from the Greek baptizo. After 2,000 years, the word is still untranslated to English. It's transliterated, and so we got a new English word baptize that came from the Greek. Here's some options as to why. The KGV translators and the King James Version has had a huge influence on the American on the English language. The KGV translators were Anglican. And those were sprinklers. And the, and the KGV, KGV translators didn't want to offend their bosses. And so they just said, well, we better not say immerse here, even though that's what the Greek word means. We better just make up a new word. We better use the word baptize. Of course, that doesn't explain the previous 1,600 years before the King James translators. I don't know why. They just didn't translate it the way it was supposed to be translated. I don't know how the Vulgate translated it. But anyway, that's what the Greek means. Baptizo. It means to dip, to sink, to immerse, to submerge. Does that sound like sprinkling? It's used in reference to the dyeing of cloths. When you dye cloth red, do you sprinkle it with red dye? It refers to sunken ships. When a ship, <laughs> when a ship sinks, is it sprinkled with water or is it immersed into the water? Definition from Steve Ackerson, to wash by dipping or submerging, to bathe. Metaphorically, it means to overwhelm. That don't sound like sprinkling to me. Now, here is a query. What if a Christian has not been baptized yet? Is he still baptized in Jesus' death? Well, if we're talking about metaphorically here, if it's not talking about water baptism, if all of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus, that's just a metaphorical expression of saying that we are completely 
into Jesus, in union with Jesus, well, then the issue doesn't arrive. Well, of course, a, a, a non-water baptized believer is then is is thus meth- metaphorically baptized in Christ. But what happens if Paul is talking about water baptism here? How do we explain this? All of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, but all those who were not baptized in water are not baptized into his death? No, I don't believe that that's what is going on here. I believe that Paul is merely speaking of the common practice, and almost all Christians were baptized immediately after conversion. He wasn't speaking about exceptions to the general rule. If someone has not been baptized into Christ's death yet, he needs he has been spiritually and actually, but he needs to go ahead with the outward symbol of what happened to it. He needs to go ahead and accomplish the outward symbol of the inward reality and go ahead and get baptized in water. But Paul is talking about in the general rule, Christians were baptized into his death. Now, again, the main point is death. We're identified in Jesus' death. Since our old man has died, that was before we were saved, our old man has died, it is dead to sin. That means it is not affected by it anymore. And if we're not affected by sin anymore, why should we sin that grace should abound? Because remember, the whole point of this is verse 1, Paul is answering the legalists who are saying we need the law to keep us from sinning. And Paul's talking about grace so much is increasing the idea that we should sin that grace may abound. It's given us a license to sin. And Paul's saying, no, if we are dead to Christ, dead in Christ, we're dead to sin. Why, do we, why would we want to sin more? What kind of dead man that you see lying by the dead of the road? How much sin can he do? Can he present his members to unrighteousness? No, he's dead. And we Christians are dead. We're dead to sin. When Christ died, sin could exercise none of its evil effects upon him. Likewise, when we die in Christ, sin can exercise none of its evil effects upon us. We're dead to sin. Here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Whoso then has been baptized into Christ's death has formally surrendered the whole state and life of sin as in Christ a dead thing. That don't sound like sinning that grace may abound. That don't sound like a license to sin. We go to verse 4 in Romans 6. Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death. In other words, the therefore is therefore because we were baptized into his death and because we were baptized, and I think it means into water, Because we were baptized in the water, therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. Whenever there's death, when you're talking about Jesus, whenever there's death, there's resurrection. When you're talking about the Christian, when there's death, there's a resurrection. What's the resurrection to? Life in Christ, a new way of life. And that is not sin, that grace may abound. Notice that here in verse 4, Paul says... Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. NIV Study Bible says that means by the power of God. Because God's glory is a public manifestation of his excellent characteristics. And the NIV Study Bible says that one of his attributes, one of his characteristics is power. So when power is used to raise Jesus, when God's divine power is used to raise Jesus, that shows the world the glory of the Father. Now here are some scriptures the NIV Study Bible quotes in order to prove that power is connected with glory. This is an interesting little mini Bible study here. Psalms 145.11, they will speak of the glory of your kingdom and will declare your might. Their glory and might or power are hooked together. Colossians 1.11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all glorious might, there's glory and might or glory and power hooked together. For all endurance and patience with joy. 
First Peter 4.11, if anyone speaks, it should be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, it should be the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ and everything. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Sounds like the, somebody singing the Lord's Prayer at the, vent, at the end there. Glory and power go together. Revelation 1.6, and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, the glory and dominion. Of course, dominion is power, power to rule. The glory and dominion are his forever and ever. Glory and power are conjoined together. Revelation 4.11, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. So there we have glory and power associated together. Because you have created all things. Revelation 5, 12 through 13, they said with a loud voice, the lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. There's power and glory that go together. Revelation 7, 12, saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Glory and power go together. So Jesus was raised to the dead by the power of God, which then gave him glory. In other words, that was a big deal. Why did God go to all that trouble to exercise his power to glorify himself? So we, too, may walk in a new way of life. We, too, just like Jesus is walking in a new way of life. He was dead, and then he's walking around resurrected. Like We, too, may walk in a new way of life, in resurrected power. All right, let's finish verse 4 with this. We, God raised Jesus so that we, too, may walk in a new way of life. How is walking in, in a new way of life in the resurrection power of Jesus, how does that, does that have anything to do with sinning because of God's grace? Sinning so that God's grace may multiply. Sinning so that grace may abound. Nonsense. It's absurd. We go to verse 5. For if we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, how are we in the likeness of Jesus' death when we're joined with him? And, of course, that we're joined with him actually as well as symbolically in baptism, but actually our old man dies. Jesus died, our old man dies. And what does that mean? It means it, since death no longer has power over Jesus, death no longer has power over the Christian. We're free from having to worry about sin destroying us. We will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Well, how can we be in the likeness of his resurrection? Christ lived a glorious, powerful, sin-free life, and Christians can do the same. If ever you feel beaten back down by sin, just consider yourself resurrected with Jesus. Paul, in another place, says consider yourself dead with Jesus, but how about consider yourself resurrected with Jesus? He walked over sin. He had the power to beat sin. You can too. And, of course, that means free from habitual sin. We're not yet at our glorified state. We're, we're free from every occasional individual sin. And note that Paul says we will we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That means, as Jameson Foster and Brown say, that our full participation in Jesus' sinless life will be postponed till we are glorified. Remember, the kingdom is already and not yet. Likewise, our sanctification, it's already but not yet. It's growing, it's changing, it's getting better and better, but we're not there yet. But we still have power over sin. So if there's a particular sin that's bedeviling you, you can have power over it. You can't stop watching the porno. You can beat it. You can get to where you don't want to do that anymore. Now notice Paul says in verse 5, if we have been joined with him, joined with Christ, that phrase is used twice in verse 5, at least, well, in the NIV and the English Standard Version translation. I'm using the Holman Christian Standard Bible so you don't see it twice. 
but it's used twice in those translations, and it means the same thing as baptized into. So if we have been joined with him, that means we that's the same thing as saying we have been baptized into him. So baptized into and joined with means the same thing. You're closely identified. I like to say instead of joined with, I like to use the word identified with. We're identified with. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown make the point it is impossible to be united in Christ's death without also being united with his resurrection. So it's both and, it's not either or. We go to Romans 6 and chapter 6. We go to Romans chapter 6, verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Now the whole thrust of that verse is we're free from sin. No more sin's dominion over the body. Sin's power, is, sin's dominion is abolished. We're no longer enslaved to sin. And that one short verse, it's freedom, freedom, freedom from sin. Now, the favorite part of this verse, though, for me, is the part that says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, with Christ. Old self is the Holman Christian Study Bible. Other translations have old man. I think the King James says old man. The old self, okay? Now, it is amazing to me how many people will say, in the light of this verse, they will say, the old man is still alive, and the old man's fighting the new man, having a battle, and sometimes the old man wins, that's when you sin. Sometimes the new man wins, that's when you're sanctified. To which I say, baloney sausage. This is a plain scripture here that says that we were crucified. Now, let me ask you a question. What part of crucified do we not understand? You ever seen a crucified man on a Roman cross that was alive when the crucifixion was finished? Have you ever seen that? Galatians 2:19 and 20. For through the law I have died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. If you have been crucified, how can you say that your old man is alive? Because if you're crucified, you're dead. There's no in-between about it. There's no old man fighting the new man. The old man is dead. It's crucified. You who say that the old man and the new man are still alive, what happens when you die? Does your new man go to heaven? And does your old man go to hell? Is there a sudden bifurcation at death and two, two John Does exist, one going to heaven and one going to be punished in hell? Do you really think that the Holy Spirit is going to regenerate a new man and then he's going to create a sinner? The Holy Spirit's going to create a sinner when he impregnates your soul, if you will, with the holy and imperishable seed of God and creates a new man. Do you really think he's going to create an old man too? Or he's going to keep the old man alive? Come on, it doesn't make any sense. But it's amazing to me how many big shot theologians believe this. I think John Calvin's got it. I mean, you hear it all the time. I even, and it doesn't matter what theological camp you're in. I, I think Watchman E's even, even in the normal Christian life, he says, the old man's still alive. I said, Watchman, come on now. That's not true. All right, what are the benefits of our old man being dead? D-E-A-D, crucified. Well, first of all, sin's dominion over the body is gone. Because if you're dead, Sin won't attract you anymore. You take a corpse lying on the side of the road. And let's go by that corpse and open up Playboy Centerfold and put it right. Let's assume it's a man corpse, a male corpse. And you go by and you got a Playboy magazine. You open up that Playboy magazine and put it in front of his dead eyes and say, Ha, ha, ha. I'm going to tempt you into lusting after this. Is it going to have any effect? I doubt it. Because he's dead to sin. And when you're dead to sin, you're no longer enslaved to sin. And notice that. Sin is, enslaves you. I mean, look at Speaking of people with porn addictions, are they enslaved? You bet they are. Ask Tiger Woods about that. Or sex addictions. 
How about people enslaved to alcohol or drugs? It's total hell trying to get them out of it. How about how about these porn actresses and actors too? But actresses I've seen that gotten saved and started a Christian group to help people in the sex industry, in the porn industry. Were they trapped? Were they enslaved? Listen to their testimonies. Oh yes, they were. But the good news is they got out of it because sin's dominion no longer is is no longer exercising power over them once they get saved and sanctified. I like this definition of the old self that was crucified from the NIV Study Bible. Our unregenerate self, what we once were. In other words, what we were in the past, but we ain't now. Now, they didn't say that, but that's what the implication is, what we once were. And if we once were, that means the old man's not alive, still fighting the new man. That's bad, bad, bad theology. Let's look at some scriptures along this idea of the old man being dead. Colossians 3, 9, and 10. Now, this is... The Holman Christian Study Bible Translation, which I think is an excellent translation of this verse, and I'm going to point out to you that the KGV translation has put a lot of people off of the truth, and it might be the the reason why so many people say the old man is still alive. Colossians 3, 9 through 10. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices. So the Holman Christian Study Bible says, see, you have put off the old self. In other words, when you got saved. And that's gone. So since you're go- since the old man is gone, don't act like an old man. And you don't need to act like the old man anymore. He's gone. He's been put off. And you've put on the new self. You were being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. All right, there's the, the progressive sanctification. You are being renewed according to the image of God. Now, what is the, ba- the, the KGV translation? The KGV translation says, put off the old man. Well, that sounds like the Christian can take an old man and put him off. And that has confused me for years until I started digging into this when I got mad enough about it. Uh, when I noticed that Paul says in Romans 6, the old man's dead. Well, how can we put off something that's dead? That doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't. That's a bad translation. Really, really, really bad. Let's look at Ephesians 4:22 through 24. You took off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. Notice it's you took off your former self in the past, your old self, when? When you got born again. That's when you took it off, the old self. You're not doing it now. Now, in verse 23, you are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. You put on the new self, again, past tense, when you got saved, you put on the new self, the one created in God's likeness and righteousness and purity and truth. Now, I'm quoting, from, I'm thinking in memory, I think that what the King James has is, put on the new man, put off the old self, and put on the new man. Well, how are you going to do that? If the old man's already dead, how do you put off something that's already dead? How are you going to put on the new man since you already got the new man when you got born again? Bad, bad, bad KGV translations. Now let's look at this phrase, sin's dominion over the body. Paul says in Romans 6, 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished. The NIV has the body of sin, which I think is not as clear. Here's what the NIV Study Bible says, quote, the body, what the body of sin is, quote, the self in its pre-Christian state dominated by sin. This is a figurative expression in which the old self is personified. So when we say we have put off the body of sin, that doesn't really ring a bell with me. But if we put off the sin's dominion over the body, that is perfectly clear. So I love the Holman Christian Study Bible translation of this verse and other verses too. Now let's look at this word abolish. Sin's dominion over the body may be abolished because our old self has been crucified with him. Sin's dominion over the body may be abolished. Well, what does abolished mean? The NIV says done away with. The NIV margin says rendered powerless. 
So let's look at the implications of those two possible translations. If you say that sin's dominion over the body is done away with, that means that sin's power over you is gone, it's kaput. And I think that fits good with the metaphor of the dead corpse by the, side, by the body of the road. That is dead to sin, so that there's no dominion over that corpse. None away. Sin has no dominion over the Christian. I think that's fine. But now if you use the margins translation, sin has been rendered powerless. It's that translation's translation which allows people to erroneously claim that the old self is still alive. Here's a quote from the NIV Study Bible to prove my point. For the believer, this old self has been rendered powerless so that it can no longer enslave us to sin, whatever lingering vitality it may yet exert in its death throes. Folks, that is not what crucified means. When a dead man is crucified, he is completely dead to everything. He's dead to sin. He's dead. It's over. There's no, oh, I'm dying to sin, and sin's got a little bit of, it's like the corpse on the side of the road. He, he opens up one eye, looks at the naked Playboy picture I'm showing, showing him, trying to entice him to sin, and he says, oh, golly, I'm being tempted. Clunk, and then his eyes shut, and he dies. Nonsense. It means done away with, as the NIV translation properly says, abolished. That means kaputski, folks, it's over. We don't need to be dominated by sin. There's no death throes of the old man dying that has its claim on us. I ask you a question. Have you ever seen a man already crucified in his death throes? No. We have been crucified with Christ. It's a, an act that has already been done with. It's over with. We're crucified. We're dead. How can we say the old man is still alive, but it's powerless in general, but it can rise up every now and then and deliver a blow? So the whole fallacious argument that the old man is still alive is based upon a marginal reading, which may not be accurate if it's not the correct text. So to summarize, one view of that word abolished is to say that it means the power of sin is rendered, sin is rendered powerless, which leaves the implication that it's still there, the dominion of sin is still there, exerting its control over you, but you eventually whip it. Where, that's the marginal region in NIV, whereas the NIV's text reading says the dominion of sin is done away with, which means there's no fight at all. It's over with, folks. So the stronger translation from my point of view that sin is conquered is the text translation is of, quote, done away with. Sin's dominion over the body is, quote, done away with. Not that it's rendered powerless and there's a still fight going on and it loses the fight because it doesn't have enough power to win the fight. No, it is rather that the power of sin is done away with. So let me just summarize Romans 6, verse 6. The old man is dead. There are no old men and new men fighting in the breast of Christians. The old man is dead. Period. End of story. We go to verse 7 in Romans 6. Once a person who has died, since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims. That's referring to the end of verse 6, which says, We may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is free from sin's claims. As I just said, using that metaphor of the corpse, corpse is not going to be attracted by sin. Sin has no power over that corpse. Sin can't punish, sin can't punish the, the guilty corpse anymore because the corpse is dead. The word freed here is dikaio, which means, according to Thayer's, to render or make or declare to be righteous or guiltless, which is the definition of justified. 
So freed from sin's claims is justified, since the person who has died is justified or made free from sin's claims. Figuratively, according to Thayer's lexicon, figuratively the word dikaio means to be freed. So when you're justified, declared righteous before God, you're also freed from sin's claims. Because if God says, hey, you're free, no, excuse me, you are righteous, that means sin can't condemn you anymore. You can't be punished for your sin anymore because God has declared you're righteous. Now, in verse 7, Paul says, since a person who has died is free from sin's claims, Paul's not talking about physical death here. Now, some people actually take it that way because when you're died, you are absolutely free from sin's claims because you're glorified. But then that leaves you open open to the suggestion that you are not dead from sin's claims while you're still alive physically. Well, that's nonsense. It's talking about spiritual death since a person who has spiritually died is freed from sin's claim. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. Every instance of violence is done to the whole scope and design of the apostle by the opinion that this text is a proof that believers will not fully save from sin in this life because only he that is dead is freed from sin. Dead physically is freed from sin. Well, that shows that some people were saying that in Adam Clark's day, that we're not totally free from sin. This It's amazing how people are so scared of sinless perfectionism that they'll teach a defeated Christian life. Well, you got sin, but that's just because the way we are. Sin lives in us, and we're not going to be totally free from sin until we die, so we're just going to have to put up with it. Nonsense. We are free from the dominion of sin. We have power over sin. Even as Jesus had power over sin when he walked in his resurrection life, we can walk in a resurrection life too in a new and living way in which we do not habitually sin. And we are being continuously transformed into the image of our Creator as we are progressively sanctified. We go to verse 8. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Now, there's no doubt expressed if we die with Christ. It really means sense. Now, I know in Greek, I, this is something I don't understand yet. I tried to get my to learn it from my Greek tutor, and I tried to look in a Greek lexicon. I don't understand the difference between if and since when you translate from the Greek. But a lot of times in English, it really looks like it ought to be since. But I understand you can't do that. So I won't say it's badly translated, but it, but as John Gill points out, it means here if we die with Christ and because we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him because death and resurrection go together. Just as Christ lived again after his death, so do Christians live again after their old self dies. This is a, re- a repeat of the thought in Romans 6, 5, which says this, for if we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So just think, identity with Christ. He died, we die. He rose, we rose. And we get baptized in water, immersed, to show that spiritual reality. We go to verse 9, which is in the middle of the sentence. So let me read the end of verse 8. We believe that we will also live with him, verse 9, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. All the other resurrections, like Lazarus, that happened before Jesus, those resurrected people died again. So I tend to like to use the term they were resuscitated to be technical about it but jesus man he was raised he was raised to his glorified body he's not going to die again and that's who we are identified with in our baptism and in our salvation we are identified with jesus christ and jesus is not ever going to die again eternal life physical as well as spiritual jesus is not going to die again that's who we identify with because death no longer rules over him well the death no longer rules over jesus and we're identified with jesus that means death that means death and sin which causes death is not going to rule over us we're never going to die again and we don't have to sin we don't have to sin because sin produces death and death has no no part of our dna dna anymore no part of our makeup 
Here's a quote from John Gill, that Christ is risen from the dead is a certain fact, well attested, thoroughly known, and firmly believed. The prophets prophesied of it, Christ himself foretold it, angels affirmed it, and the apostles were witnesses of it, as is also the Holy Ghost. See, Paul says we know that Christ was raised from the dead. We know. He didn't speculate about the resurrection. He knew because it was a well-attested fact, as John Gill says. We go to verse 10 in Romans 6. For in light of the fact that he died, he, Jesus, died, he died to sin once for all. But in the light of the fact that he lives, he lives to God. How did he die to sin? Jesus submitted to the reign of sin by becoming human, as the NIV Study Bible says. But once he ceased being submitted to the reign of sin, he died to that reign of sin forever. He's passed forever from sin's reign. Romans 5.21, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness. So we have a regime change. Death ruling over mankind, and now grace is ruling over mankind, or at least that part of mankind which accepts the gracious offer of Christ's forgiveness, which eventually is going to be all of mankind as the unbelieving parts of mankind are judged and subject to God's wrath and sent to hell. The rest of mankind is going to be reigning with Christ. Now, when Paul says here, in light of the fact that he lives, he lives to God. Living to God means living forever in obedience to the Father's will, as Steve Ackerson put it. And likewise, we're going to be living in obedience to God's will. Now, does that sound like sinning that grace may abound? I don't think so. Paul, again, remember his main theme is saying, look, because we died to Christ and we live and we lived to Christ, we, because our old sinful self died and our new holy self lives with Christ, that means we're going to be doing righteous stuff, not unrighteous stuff. So this idea that you sin that grace may abound is nonsense. Now notice that Paul says that Jesus died to sin once for all. That sort of puts a hole in the Catholic notion, notion of the perpetual sacrifice of the Mass where Christ is crucified again. Now I did read a Catholic one time who said that that was a misstatement of the Catholic position, and I'm not up on Catholic polemics right now, so I'm not sure if the Protestants have correctly stated this Catholic doctrine, but I will say this, at least the Protestant idea of what the Catholics believe, if it's right, then we got a problem with this verse because Jesus died for sin once for all. He didn't need to do it again. He did it once. Now, he died once for all. Now, that sounds like time. He died at one point in time. He's not going to need to die again, and I believe that's what it is. The context really shows that because we look in verse 9, the previous verse, we read, death no longer rules over him, but Jesus died once for all, for all that period of no longer, for all time, no longer, and so it fits. Some people, however, say that the for all means for all people. He, Jesus, died to sin once for all people. Well, of course, that would teach unlimited atonement, which I, as a good Calvinist, do not believe in. So I don't like that translation. But even if you were an Arminian, you got to admit that's not what he meant. He meant he didn't die. He died to sin once for all in time, not he died for all people. In other words, if you're an Arminian, you're going to have to establish the doctrine of unlimited atonement on other verses that are much stronger than this. Verse 11, Romans 6, so you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And now he's identifying the Christian with Jesus. Jesus died, Jesus rose, you too, you die, and then you rose. You die, and then you be alive. Consider yourself dead. Now that word consider means to reckon, to calculate, to meditate. That's Thayer's lexicon. Reckon yourself dead. Consider yourself dead. Ackerson says, think about the truth and count on it being true. And notice, what are you supposed to consider or reckon or calculate as to be true and to think about as being true? 
that you have an old man fighting a new man? No, it says dead. Reckon yourself dead. That means D-E-A-D. You're not alive to sin anymore, but rather you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. That phrase in Christ Jesus here is the first use of the term in the book of Romans. If you, Whenever you see the word in, you can translate it as in union with. I once justified that by doing a study, and I've got the study in my notes somewhere. and Not in my notes I'm using now, but somewhere else on my computer. But rest assured, when you see in, just in your mind say in union with. It works every time. But alive to God in Christ Jesus, in union with Christ Jesus, and that's how we refrain from sin is because we are in total union with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus who never will die, who is totally free from the dominion of sin. Sin has no effect on him and has no part in him, and that's who we are in union with, and that's how you beat sin. Paul uses that phrase, in Christ, all the time in the Scriptures. And how many times have you heard somebody give you a teaching on in Christ? Only the exchange life people do that. The Keswick people, the people that influenced Hudson Taylor, the missionary to China so much, but you won't hear that, you typical Reform-type circles. They don't talk too much about in Christ Jesus. Well, actually, nobody does, not just them. Hardly anybody does. It's revolutionary, folks. It's something that you want to look into. Just go on the web and find those few pitiful little websites talking about the exchange life, and you will find a lot of power there. That's how you beat sin. Consider yourself dead, Paul said, says the same thing in Colossians 3.3, 3, for you have died. End of story. You have died, and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. So you've died, and as a result of your death, you are now hidden in Jesus, hidden in Christ, and that's the same thing as being saying in union with. Your life is hidden in means you're in union with, with, with God in Christ Jesus. Excuse me, you're in union with Christ Jesus. Romans 6.12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your body, body, mortal body. In other words, since you are in union with Christ Jesus, don't let sin reign in your mortal, mortal body. Now, there's your answer, folks. In union with Christ, that's how you are able not to not let sin reign in your mortal body. That's how you beat sin, so that you obey its desires. Now, that verse does say does leave open the possibility that you could let sin reign in your mortal body. This shows that it is possible for a new man to sin. The new man would not be acting in accordance with his desire, with his nature as a born-again Christian walking in the new life, in the resurrected life of Jesus, but he could still sin. I like the old formula that I think Augustine came up with, which says that in your unregenerate state, you are not able not to sin. You are enslaved to sin. Nothing you can do but sin. In your regenerate state here on this earth, you are able not to sin. And that's where we are now. So when Paul says, do not let sin reign in your body, he's saying, you're able not to sin, so don't, so don't do it. Don't sin. But then when we get to our glorified bodies, our, our regenerate state in the final state, we are not able to sin. We couldn't sin if we wanted to, because we don't want to. There's no sin in heaven. Now, we don't want to use this verse to erroneously claim that we are sinners, because Paul leaves open the possibility that sin might reign in our mortal body so that we obey its desires. I mean, obviously Christians do that kind of stuff. I mean, I just saw a Christian who was raised in a Christian school, had a Christian boyfriend, son of a pastor. They would sit and read the book of Joshua while they would snort and meth. And then she got into the porn business, married this guy, and then she got out, and then she had a financial problem. She was back in there shooting pornographic movies. Well, she's letting sin, she's obeying the desires of sin, her love for money to let her get into the worst kind of degradation a person can get into. 
So, yeah, it's possible, but that does not mean that you're a sinner. She is acting contrary. That woman was acting contrary to her nature as a, as a, as a Christian. Let me repeat this. The old man is crucified and dead. I'm going to read you four verses in, a, in rapid fire succession to prove this point. I hate to overemphasize it. I don't want to sound like a fanatic on the subject, but it has been so abused and the contrary has been stated so often that I feel it's necessary. Romans 6, 6. For we know that our old self was crucified. Romans 6, 8. Now, if we died with Christ. Romans 6, 11. So you too consider yourself dead to sin. Colossians 3, 3, for you have died. Well, there it is, folks. So even though that it is possible that you can let yourself submit to the lust of sin and let sin reign, you don't have to, and you have the power to walk away from it. That girl who went back to pornography, she had every power to say, Jesus, I'm fed up with this. In fact, it was really neat. The documentary I was watching showed that a lot of Christian girls, a lot of girls who got saved in the porn business did walk away from it. The famous Deep Throat, one of the most famous porn films of all time. She's a dedicated Christian now with a Christian family and Christian kids. She didn't have to let sin reign in her mortal body. Here's a quote from Cranfield, the commentator. We must not let sin reign like a king over us. We have an obligation to stop allowing sin to reign unopposed and to revolt in the name of our, our rightful ruler, King Jesus. Yeah, we can stop it. Stop the revolt. Now, notice that this verse says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Now, if in has the idea of being enclosed within, we can say this, that sin is something alien to our new self. We are a new self, but then we've got something alien inside of it. The analogy I like to use is arsenic. Let's say you ingest a healthy dose, an unhealthy dose of arsenic, you end up in the hospital. Well, you are not the arsenic. You've got something alien to you that's killing you. And likewise, a new man, a Christian, can put sin in his body just like a human being can put arsenic in his body. And that sin will start to work on you in negative ways. And you've got to get rid of that sin. You get rid of the sin. You get healthy again. And your, and your, and your true nature begins to manifest itself. Your true nature of holiness and godliness. Now, in could also mean in the sphere of one's mortal body. Do not let sin, sin reign in the sphere or the area of your mortal body, and it could be therefore said to be acting from without the mortal body. Well, I think most people's experience of sin, it seems like it comes from within you. So I like that in being within the mortal body. Now, we do not have to obey sin's desires. That word desires is also translated in the New American Standard Bible as coveting in, in various places, not just here, as coveting, desire, impulses, lust. I'm going to give you a quote from Steve Atkinson who likes to put it in good English, simple English, so we can all understand it. We're not being subject to sin's desires means this, quote, that our bodies will still experience inappropriate passions shows that the temptation to sin will still be present in, Christian, in, in a Christian's life. However, we are now dead to that sin. We are no longer slaves to it. Some people erroneously think that the more spiritual one is, the less he will feel temptation. However, lust and temptation will never go away. If anything, the more spiritual one is, the more he is aware of potential sin in his life. That's true. Just like you, you start and you say, oh, I'm going to start learning math. You start out with the multiplication tables, you get into algebra, and the next thing you know, you're in calculus, and it just gets worse and worse. <laughs> the more you get into holiness, you start out by saying, well, i got to stop killing and raping and stealing and lusting and, you know, the simple things. And then we've got to get into more subtle things as you get older and older in Christ. 
And then you start getting tempted all over the places before you didn't really worry about it too much or as much as you should have. So that's really true. We're always going to be tempted, but we got to remember it. With the temptation comes the, the dominion over it, the power. Sin does not need to reign in our life. Now, when Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, he is, of course, talking to Christians empowered of the Holy Spirit, as John Gill says. A non-Christian, of course, cannot just say, well, I'm not going to let sin reign in my life. As John Gill says, that's impossible because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit working on that sin. And again, when Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, he is again, once again, let's get back to our context. He's, he's fighting against these people who are accusing him of antinomian license. He's saying, oh, I ain't pushing for sin that grace may abound. I'm pushing for grace. I'm pushing for holiness. I hate sin. We go to Romans chapter 6, verse 13. And do not offer any parts of it, that's referring to your mortal body, do not offer any parts of your mortal body to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Now Paul here is using the body as a metaphor for the person, the whole person, soul as well as body. If I offer my pick up my hand and say, I'm going to put, use my arm to pick up a revolver and go hold up a bank. Well, then I'm using my part, a part of my mortal body as a, as a weapon for sin, as a weapon for unrighteousness. But if on the other hand, I take my arm and help a little old lady across the street, then I'm helping, I'm using my the members of my body as an instrument of righteousness. So we're supposed to offer ourselves to God so that all parts of ourselves, that's all parts of the body using his metaphor, but what he really means is all parts of yourself, your whole body, your soul, your spirit, all the separate capacities of your being, as the NIV Study Bible puts it. John Gill puts it this way, by their members, physical parts of your body, by their members, he means the several powers and faculties of the soul. In other words, the body is just a metaphor for your soul, to give your whole soul to God and to righteousness again. That doesn't sound like sinning that grace may abound, does it not? This is talk, This is this chapter is talking about how do we beat sin? How do we conquer sin? Verse 14, Romans 6. For sin will not rule over you. Again, along the same theme here. Sin will not rule over you because you are not under law but under grace. And now Paul again says, look, you guys who are complaining about me not preaching enough law, you are the ones that are causing people to sin because law produces sin in people. Romans 5.20, the law came along to multiply the, the, the trespass. Romans 7.8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Covetousness is an example of the law that when it works through the law, sin working through that law of covetousness against covetousness, sin produces more covetousness, all kinds of covetousness. So let's look at this verse again. This is one of my favorite verses. For sin will not rule over you because you're not under law but under grace. Do a simple logical transformation and you come up with this. For sin will rule over you because you are under law but not under grace. You want sin to rule over you? Get under the law. And by the way, Paul is talking about the Mosaic law, but any law will do. The law of your conscience that Gentiles are under. You get under that law. I will not steal. I will not lie. And you will be so tempted to lie and you will not be able to stop whatever your besetting sin is. You're not going to be able to stop it because you don't have any power. You get under the law, sin's going to rule you. And that's just exactly the opposite of what these distorters of Paul's doctrine of grace were saying. They were saying more grace produces more sin. And Paul's saying no, more law produces more sin. And grace produces exactly the opposite. Now when Paul says we're under grace, that doesn't mean he's antinomian. 
Now, I hate to say this, there's a lot of Reformed people who are constantly throwing that pejorative at people who say that we're under the law of Christ and that we're, not, we're free from the Mosaic law. I wish they would stop it because it's unjust. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.21, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Paul says, To those outside the law, to those Gentiles, I became as one outside the law. I became as a Gentile. Now, he's saying he was outside the law, but he immediately protects himself against the charge of antinomianism, the same problem he has in Romans 6 he had in 1 Corinthians 9. Because he says, look, when I'm outside the law, I'm not outside the law of God, but I'm under the law of Christ. Galatians 6, 2, he says, bear one another's burdens so as to fulfill the law of Christ. So when we are not under the law, that means we're not under the law of Moses. That does not mean we're not under the law of Christ. We are not antinomian. We have a law. It's just a different law. It's not the Mosaic law. Because when you're under the law of Christ, now you have forgiveness, redemption, justification, and sanctification in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's that's what the law of Moses can't give you, and that's what the law of conscience written on your heart can't give you. Now Paul says, "Sin will not rule under you because will not rule over you because you're under grace." How does grace cause sin not to rule over you? Well, let's read some scriptures. Titus two eleven through twelve. For the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people. The grace of God, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. Why? How can we deny godliness and worldly lust? And how can we live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age? Because the grace of God has appeared. Of course, the grace of God is all what Jesus did for us through his unmerited favor. So the grace is associated with all kinds of righteous stuff, not sin. Galatians 5.16 I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. So there's another theme. The Holy Spirit is opposed to the law and sin and death. The Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit without the law of Christ. Obviously, the Holy Spirit has a law. It's the law of Christ, but it's still, it's not the law of Moses, and it's not the law written on the Gentile's heart. Here's another good quote, homely, down-to-earth quote from Steve Ackerson. Run and do, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Now, in Romans 6:14, I said that Paul is referring to the Mosaic Law. He says, because you're not under the Mosaic Law, but under grace. That's not a slam dunk. Some people say, suggest that it could be the moral law. You're not under the moral law, but you're under grace. I don't. I guess the moral law, would. this is John Gill's suggestion, might mean the law of conscience written on a Gentile's heart. It doesn't matter. I don't care what law you're under. You're not going to get sanctified. You're not going to get more and more righteous. You're going to get more and more sinful, whatever law you're under. It leads to sin and death being under a law, except for the law of Christ. All right, let's summarize a little bit of Romans 6. When Paul says in verse 14 that sin will not rule over you, this is sort of a good way to summarize the whole first 14 verses that we're covering in this audio. This is, for, again, from Steve Ackerson. He says, first, we have died to sin. Verse 2 says, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Verse 11. Consider yourself dead to sin. All right, so that's the first thing. We've died to sin. Second thing, we've been set free from sin, Romans 6, 7. Since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims, Romans 6, 22. Since you have been liberated from sin. That's actually in the next section of verse 22. It's not in the first 14 verses, but it's the same idea. You've been freed from sin. Verse 7 says you've been freed from sin. All right, so we've been died to sin. We've been set free from sin. Point number two, point number three. 
Sin no longer rules over us. Romans 6.14, for sin will not rule over you because you're not under law but under grace. All right, so let's finish up here with the implications of all, of all this. When we sin, we do it voluntarily, but we have the power through the Holy Spirit not to do it. We can't say the devil made me do it because we did it. But we can say through the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to do it. And on that happy thought, ladies and gentlemen, we are finished with Romans 6, 1 through 14. The old man is dead. We're living to Christ and we are free from sin. So next audio, we're going to talk about being a slave to righteousness. And the first part of Romans 6, we are free from being a slave to sin. And in the next last half of Romans 6, we're going to be a slave to righteousness instead of being a slave to sin. Hope you tune in for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.